Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, I'm Alpha. I'm Stephen. And I'm Chris. And you're listening to the New Statesman podcast. On today's episode, we discuss the rift between the Scottish Conservatives and Conservatives in Westminster. And you ask us about Welsh Labour's approach to federalism. So we're delighted to be joined for this New Statesman podcast by Chris Deering, our Scotland editor who knows all things Scottish politics and uh, we thought that it would be interesting with with Partygate and so on to look at the tensions that have emerged Chris between the Scottish Conservatives and the Conservatives in Westminster because one of Boris Johnson's most vocal critics in recent times has of course been the Scottish Conservative leader. If the Prime Minister attended this gathering party event in Downing Street on the 20th of May then he could not continue as Prime Minister. So regretfully, I have to say that his position is no longer tenable. Chris, sort of, what do you think the implications are for the Conservatives in Scotland that there's, there are such obvious tensions between, between the two and some senior Conservatives in Westminster have been quite belittling of Douglas Ross in recent weeks? Yeah, the, I think the most outspoken was Jacob Rees-Mogg, who I noted with some amusement was described by the author Christopher Brookman in question time last night as a steampunk C3PO. So he really hasn't endeared himself to many people in Scotland, perhaps even those who have no time for the Tories, but, but do think that a lack of respect is something to be picked up on. Uh, this has been a long time coming, actually, and the idea of a separate Scottish Conservative Party has been bubbling away probably for a couple of decades without ever really taking root. That's something that's been pushed uh, most by Murdo Fraser, who's a senior MSP uh, and the Conservatives at the Scottish Parliament. But you'll remember that Ruth Davidson, when she was Tory leader, had very little time for Boris Johnson and took him on quite publicly during the Brexit debate. And mm-hmm. I think her, her departure as leader had a reasonable amount to do with Boris Johnson becoming Prime Minister, among other reasons. But I think she just looked ahead and saw nothing but trouble for the Scottish Conservatives because of the way that behaves. And indeed, that has been the case. It's been a, a series of frustrations and irritations for the Scottish party, both in terms of Johnson's behaviour and through COVID, through Brexit, through some of the policies that were pursued, which often leave the Scottish Conservatives in a very difficult position up here because Mm. they have, I think, because of the nature of politics up here, they've tried to be a bit more centrist, a bit more one nation in their approach. And 
when the Southern Party swings off to the right, you've got the various reform groups pushing the Prime Minister towards maybe some of the more extreme sides of policy. <clears throat> they, they get it in the neck up here from the SNP and the Labour Party, and it's quite hard for them to defend. So that's always been if you like, in the background, Scottish Conservatives considering their future. I think, obviously, relationships are now worse than they've ever been. And Douglas Ross coming out and saying Johnson should go has made the relationship pretty much untenable and irreparable as well. It was you know, pointed out to me quite quickly after the uh, once when Douglas spoke out that the Conservatives have a conference in March up here and I said it was inconceivable that Johnson could be allowed to speak at that. And that mm. would be the first time the UK leader hasn't spoken at that conference ever basically, since they, they started having them. So relations are uh, in a terrible state. Mm-hmm. The whole of the parliamentary party at Holyrood backed Douglas Ross. So there's kind of unanimity up here, uh, maybe apart from the Scottish Secretary, but he has his own alliances to, to look after. The question is, what happens next? As you say, I don't think there's a huge appetite at the moment to make the breakaway, as, as someone put it to me, for the Scottish Tories breaking away from the Westminster party would have the SNP a bit of a weapon in the they would simply say if it's good enough for the Conservatives in Scotland to break away from Westminster, why is it not good enough for Scotland to do that? So it's, it's almost viewed as something that's best done uh, in consideration and probably out of the hysteria of the moment, just on the back of, a, of the current route. But that said, it's been talked about for a while. I don't think there's necessarily been huge appetite for it among the leadership. It tends to be people around the leadership who quite like the idea, but it's undoubtedly the case it will be considered more seriously. Now, maybe at that point, depending on who the new leader is, it's the kind of idea that will fall away again if relationships can be repaired. But equally, it has been running for a while. The Conservatives in Scotland do need to take a different position on all sorts of policies and that freedom uh, may be best served by being a separate party. Some would argue it could be served by just acting independently, even if you, you maintain the link. But obviously, we've seen through the Johnson era that uh, doesn't really work for them. So we'll see. I think it's a bit too early to call at the moment. And Chris, uh, was it a surprise that Douglas Ross came out and said this at this point? I know you said about this being a theme in the background for a while, but maybe in particular, in terms of Douglas Ross personally, mm. how have his relations been with the Boris Johnson government over the past few years? And have have they deteriorated the longer he's been in post as leader of the Scottish Tories? Well, you remember that Douglas Ross was a minister in the Scotland office and actually Mm. resigned as a minister over the the Barnard Castle affair, the Dominic Cummings Mm. affair, on a point of principle. And I think from, you know, what I've seen of him and what I hear about him, he is quite a principled Guy, and so having done that, I, I think you you saw the, the kind of nature of the man, and when it when it came to current events, I don't think it was a huge surprise. He he basically started out saying, if Johnson is proven to have broken the rules, then he has to go, and then when it emerged, Johnson had broken the rules and had been involved in parties. He didn't really have a lot of choice, so there was a mixture of political pressure to stick to his guns, but also I think there is a personal point of principle there where he is likely mm-hmm. to you know, to take those kinds of, of positions. He's quite a hard-headed character. He's quite aggressive. I think he has been around long enough to see the, the damage that's been done to the Scottish Conservatives by uh, the way the Westminster Party has been behaving over the past couple of years. I, I think mm-hmm. as well they would look at someone like Jacob Rees-Mogg having a pop and think probably that serves him quite well. You can imagine how Jacob Rees-Mogg goes down up here. I think the very first time we heard of him, he was standing in a general election in Fife and, and brought his nanny up to campaign with him and was taken around in a, a Rolls Royce or something of that, that that order then. So he's always been a bit of a figure of fun in Scotland and the people have watched with some 
incredulity as he's risen up the political pole to a position mm. of, of seniority now. So I don't think Douglas Ross loses any fans being attacked by Jacob Rees-Mogg. And as Boris Johnson couldn't, his popularity couldn't be any lower up here. So again, taking a stance against the Prime Minister is not going to do Douglas Ross any harm amongst the broader... Ben, what about the, the view from Westminster among Conservatives um, watching this row, watching how... Jacob Rees-Mogg and then Michael Gove as well, reportedly. What like observing how they have spoken about the leader of the Scottish Conservative? Do people feel like that has gone well? That what's the view in Tory circles here? Here in Westminster, you know, it, it's long been a sort of favoured joke of lots of people that Alistair Jack, the Scottish Secretary, essentially believes that most of his Scottish Conservative colleagues are actually Lib Dems. Yeah, yeah, Ricard loads them as sort of irretrievable wets. And the moment that the Conservative Party chose to have Boris Johnson as its leader, it chose to privilege holding on to power in England over building on it. We shouldn't forget, actually, quite good election result in Scotland in 2017. Yeah, 13 MPs. Yeah. So I think, obviously, yeah, for Michael Gove, it's different, right? He is Scottish. He... Tends, has tended to be the person who, when they've been arguing about the future of the union, has preferred the hug them to death approach to the SNP rather than the sort of open confrontation approach. But for the most part, this is the thing that they, the argument that people make when you go, well, look, what about the future of the union? Is they go, well, the future of the union is is protected by the parliamentary majority down in Westminster. Mm. I think you can argue that that is a slightly naive approach. But you know, their argument is that the majority in Westminster is what matters. And we have already taken a decision to privilege winning that majority in Scotland rather than trying to expand on what we got in 2017. The thing that I think, though, is going to be quite difficult for all concerned, there are local elections in Scotland in a couple of months' time, local elections in which actually they did very well. They gained close to 200 councillors. Now, yes, STV does mean that it's, yeah, it effectively protects a party from being completely wiped out in a way that it can be under first past the post because it will maintain enough vestigial support. But I do think it's going to be difficult considering that basically the Conservative electoral strategy in Scotland has been to bank the sort of core Conservative vote and then try and top that up with some kind of, I'm not like those scary Tories from down south, I'm a bit different. Um, it's much harder to do that in a preferential system like STV anyway, but it's even more hard to do when what? He's obviously not going to come to this conference in March. I don't see how he's going to be on the campaign trail anywhere in Scotland, but where the National Party will be this ghost at the feast for their local election campaign. But for the most part, I think the other thing that you bear in mind at Westminster is, as we've discussed before, Boris Johnson has a big problem with um, straight men in Parliament who believe that they're not going to be promoted under him, you know, and they therefore are making trouble. And lots of uh, people at the top of the party, I think, tend to see their Douglas Ross problem as at one with their problem with, say, William Rack. Mm. Now, of course, it's actually more complex than that problem, but they, I think, just go, look, this is all in the same bucket, so we don't need to worry about it as much as they do worry about what might also happen in May in England. It's interesting, isn't it? This, I, well, because the immediate reaction to this sort of very obvious chasm between Douglas Ross and Jacob Rees-Mogg was people talking about the, the almost the, the, the perceived logical inconsistency of a pro-union party splitting and the irony of potentially the Scottish Conservatives going independent. But as you were saying, Chris, that has been discussed for a while. Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, 
how, how much that gets discussed and what the different arguments are? Of course, it's not unusual for that to be the arrangement, maybe on the mm. continent, for example, that you do have these uh, separate parties that tuck in together at a national level. And I think that's where a lot of Scottish Tories have been looking over the years. And what, what they see is that it would give them a freedom of movement and perhaps a disassociation, both rhetorically and in fact, from the party at, at Westminster. And Stephen makes the point that Douglas Ross gets put in the same bucket as William Ragg, but it isn't the same bucket. Up here, they're fighting a completely different argument, having completely different conversations, and their priorities are, are very different. You know, up here, as everyone knows, Scotland voted to remain in the EU. But, but we're leaving and Brexit has done immense damage to Scotland's view of, of Westminster and, and the Union to the point that the SNP are now, or support for independence is now pretty much at, at 50% and may or may not grow further, but it's higher than it's, and consistently higher than it's ever been. The, the Tories in Scotland are constantly fighting that. They're constantly fighting in, in a political culture that still has deep suspicion of the Conservatives as a hangover from the Thatcher era, a country that was run by Labour really through the, the, the 1980s, etc. So th- there's a lot they have to get over in Scotland that they probably don't south of the border. Obviously in some places they do, but in other places they don't. So they have to shape their messages differently. They have to position themselves differently. And the argument for breaking away has always been that uh, it would be much easier to do that and take all of your own decisions and be able to cry wolf about the party down south whenever it did any of the, the crazy things that it does sometimes plead to your independence when that happens. But obviously, the party would maintain a whole bunch of associations in terms of its instincts and its, well, its policies and its foreign policy and probably mm. economics and things like that, where there would be support between the two parties. It depends how formal that would be and how much crossover there would be in terms of visits and and relationships and the rest of it. But as I say, it tends not to be something that the leader of the party is keen on. So Ruth Davidson wasn't keen on it, although she was interested in discussing it. I don't think Douglas Ross is very keen on it. There's been a sort of hardcore uh, largely led by some senior people who, who are on the, you know, either the front bench or, or back benches who have never been in positions of leadership. It, it would be difficult to do. We know politicians as well don't particularly like to take on these enormous tasks. It would no doubt lead to all sorts of trouble in the process of actually doing it, and that, that may in the end just be a hassle that they don't want to have. I, I think what they really want is Johnson gone within a month, if possible. A new leader brought in who is more amenable to Scotland, which would be just about everyone. I'm not saying they'd be popular, but they'd be certainly more popular mm-hmm. than, than Boris Johnson. And then things could calm down a little bit. You maybe get a, a boost from, you know, the, in the polls from a new leader and, and things could calm down a bit. Just quickly on that one, Stephen, before we move on to part two, from a Scottish Conservative perspective, if Boris Johnson were to be replaced, who do Tories think would be the most favourable candidate? Is there a consensus on that? There isn't really. I think in some ways, just as uh, why does Boris Johnson remain in place? Partly because some Conservatives think the next couple of months are going to be really difficult anyway, and then therefore it would be the worst sort of moment to launch a new leader. But also because people have question marks about the the, the various options. Broadly, people will go, you know, go look. This trust would be difficult because yeah. It, it, if, if Truss were to become prime minister, it would be the she would be the first sort of I think properly ideologically driven. You know, David Cameron led a quite radical government, but he was a very radical government. Was, but he was not ideologically driven in the way a Truss government was or as a Thatcher government. And we yeah you know, we know how that story went for, for for us in Scotland last time. But then they mm. look at the various missteps that people feel Rishi Sunak has made over the last couple of 
weeks, you know, is a very bad interview about this crisis, and they go, oh, "Is he really ready for prime time?" So there isn't a consensus in in I in, down here in any bit of the party, I think, about who they who they want. Um, yeah, obviously, the interesting thing is, of course, last time the person who did the best job of of winning support for Scottish MPs was a Scottish MP for a seat in England, Michael Gove. And it would be interesting mm. to see if he does run again, if he was once again able to do that. I, th- mm. I think in part it's also about, <clears throat> obviously it's not the main consideration, but if it is taken into consideration, what is it that Scots want from Westminster, living in a devolved nation where our arguments are very different, our front pages are different, our TV news bulletins are often very different. So what is it that Scots want from Westminster? And this has been an ongoing thing about Westminster taking over aspects of devolved policy, intervening to spend money in, in Scotland, trying to show that the SNP don't have it all their own way and that the union is still good for Scotland. I've always slightly been suspicious of that, that what Scots really want is a competent government at Westminster that's got its head screwed on, that makes sensible decisions on foreign policy and economics, even if they're quite controversial at times, to know they're in the hands of someone competent and reasonably serious and that that is pretty much the best that can be hoped for. There's always going to be a, a dislike of the Conservatives up here amongst many voters So what you're really having to do is create a position in the union where Westminster is behaving or the government is behaving in ways that Scots can tolerate and feel that it's not forcing them to a position where they actually have to leave because they just can't wear the decisions or the character of the people at Westminster. So that, again, you know, maybe suggests a whole different type of person. I I don't know which of them would come closest to that. And obviously it's not the main consideration of MPs at Westminster, but but that, that, that strikes me as the best deal that you could do for Scotland in all of this. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. From The New Statesman's World Review comes Battle for the Soul of America, a three-part series that examines the first year of Joe Biden's presidency. We did it. We did it, Joe. You're going to be the next president of the United States. (laughs) I'm your host, Emily Tampkin, and I'll be joined by expert guests to examine how President Biden's core campaign pledges have held up, specifically foreign policy. We've seen a huge change of tone and rhetoric in the relation between the United States and Europe. Uh, The administration does not call the EU a foe. Immigration. I think a lot of people who were opposing Trump's policies, you know, most obviously the separation of the children at the border, I think may also find it very uncomfortable that they might be complicit in electing someone who is now keeping those policies in place. And voting rights. Just search for World Review on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.
And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. Sorry to subject you to that, Chris, <laughs> the call and response. We've had some questions about Welsh politics and the, the one that we wanted to pick was, what does the panel think of the Welsh government's positioning on radical federalism and their own independent constitutional commission? Do you think it matters to Keir Starmer considering he's tasked Gordon Brown with more or less the same job? And what position will Welsh Labour be put in if their commission and federalist policy are not accepted by Keir Starmer? Stephen, do you want to tackle that one first? Yeah, I think this is a really good and useful question um, because the answer is, is actually, I think, quite simple. But the reasons for that are quite interesting, which is the matter won't arise. Although, obviously, Gordon Brown is a hugely respected, incredibly influential person in the politics of the Labour Party. He's someone who Keir Starmer speaks to regularly, etc., etc. The Labour Party's position on federalism is not going to end up running behind or undercutting the position of the Welsh Labour Party as long as Keir Starmer is leader of the Labour Party for a couple of reasons. Now, as as I've said before, the really important one of the really important things to understand Keir Starmer's style of leadership is he is the first political leader in a very long time to actually ever to have led a modern corporate entity of the kind that the CPS is. And this is one of the reasons why even when things were very bad, you would speak to people from, you know, you speak to people at the top of the Welsh government, you know, speak to the Metro mayors, and even ones who were politically quite far away from him, in some cases closer, closer politically to the leadership and gone, would essentially, you know, say, fortunately, weren't allowed to grip you by the labels and go, Stephen, if you don't start being nicer about this leader. But they were very attached to the fact that they felt consulted, listened to, and deferred to, partly because I think, not actually of because of any political differences between, yeah, I don't think that's about political differences between Ed Miliband and Keir, or Keir and Keir Starmer and then Jeremy Corbyn. That is because of a sort of leadership style, which is, I'm head of this organisation, I pull these levers, there are people in various areas who I essentially accept, almost by definition, if you're the head of the CPS, you understand that there is this thing called Scottish law, and there are bits of Welsh law, that of, of Welsh competences that are devolved in which we, bits which aren't. So I think that simply won't arise. I do think, however, the interesting difficulty with federalism to move from the kind of politics of this to the kind of policy wonkery, and also, I guess, why some of the politics are more fraught than people necessarily think, which is the problem with any attempt to do proper federalism in a UK context is there is this thing called London, the dark star, as Alex Salmond liked to refer to it. Yeah, elections are still worth revisiting, actually, that generates most of the tax revenue, most of the, of the et cetera, et cetera. So... You struggle to have proper federalism in a situation in which you just have this thing, which if it goes, well, actually would like to keep more of our money, sozzles, the sums don't add up. And you have a, this quite radical, very interesting set of shared proposals. And we should talk about some of the government structure of, of that uh, in a later episode of the, the Welsh Labour and Plaid Cymru have. But if you had a proper federalist model on the current, yeah, with, with the British economy looking as it does now, then all of the sums for that start to look quite difficult. And I think that is actually a bigger problem for the Labour Party with yeah, with its embrace of federalism, which is that it, for it to work, you'd have to assume that the Conservative government is going to be much more successful at levelling up the nations of region and regions of the UK than I think any, you know, I'm not even convinced that Boris Johnson believes that they'd be successful enough for, for the sort of, for federalism as it exists in the Labour imagination to be a 
a workable destination by 2024. But ultimately, yeah, the, the, the Welsh Labour Party will be the lead player on where they end up in devolution. They are not going to end up being undercut by this specific Labour leader. If Keir Starmer keeled over and was replaced by someone who was politically identical to him in all other respects tomorrow, that might change. But mm. under this particular style of leadership, ain't going to happen. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Alvin Ray, our political editor, Stephen Bush, and Scotland editor, Chris Steeran. We're produced by Adrian Bradley, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thank you very much for listening. Please do rate, review, and subscribe. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.